Good morning. I'm Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be president and CEO of the Cato Institute, and also my honor and privilege to welcome all of you this morning to Cato. Also, a bulk of our audience is online, so welcome. Um, glad that you're joining us for this important and timely conference, New Challenges to the Free Economy from Left and Right. As a libertarian, I often say that I don't feel any gravitational pull towards one political pole or the other. No gravitational pull towards one political party or the other. In fact, every summer at Cato, we welcome 400 middle school and high school educators here. And in order to illustrate to them our philosophy, I tell them that I could go out on the street here and pull any person aside at random, and I would probably agree with them on, let's say, 50% of their public policy positions. Now, which 50% would depend on whether they were coming from the left or the right, but it just illustrates that we can find common ground on policy with virtually anyone. And on the basis of that common ground, we seek to constructively engage with everyone. Except in economics, those of us who advocate without reservation for free markets and free enterprise, which describes virtually all of us at the Cato Institute, we increasingly feel orphaned. We increasingly feel lonely as the ranks of the free markets defenders seem to be thinning. Despite that loneliness, we think markets and enterprise are well worth defending. We all know the story. For tens of thousands of years, humans walked a lucky few rode animals, and virtually everyone spent their lives obsessed and fully engaged with how they would get enough food on this day to ensure that they would live to the next day. Yes, life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And if those words won't, don't resonate with you, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase our late great friend P.J. O'Rourke who reminded us that if we want to know how good we have it in the modern age, just think about one single word, dentistry. But then the long struggle to limit government and to bring government under the rule of law led to the dawn of a golden age only about 250 years ago, give or take. And a steadily increasing share of the population were set free to pursue their hard work and their ideas and to keep the fruits of that hard work and those ideas. Those changes generated a wellspring of innovation that has persisted and continued growing until the amazing times in which we live today. Another friend of Cato, Daniel Hannon, has reminded us, open markets lifted billions from poverty, added decades to our lives, and gave us powers that previous generations attributed to wizards or gods. But Hannon's postscript to that reminder is that yes, open markets lifted billions from poverty, added decades to our lives, and gave us powers that previous generations ascribed to wizards or gods, but we didn't even notice. We take all these things, like modern dentistry, for granted. And we're all too complacent about defending the free economic system that has delivered them to us. And the reason advocates of the free economy are feeling lonely is because both the left and the right are moving in a direction away from markets 
in a direction towards more interventions and more exercise of state power in ways that distort markets. Markets and enterprise get held to an impossible standard for the free economy is the one thing we only judge against utopian perfection. And every observed suboptimality against that utopian ideal is a candidate for policy interventions, well-intentioned but misguided policy interventions that too often just make things worse. When open markets are allowed to operate, they deliver amazing innovation, progress, and results. But for the things that are too important to leave to markets, we carve out a large role for state intervention. And how's that working out for us? For most middle-class adults in America, their greatest aspiration is providing and taking care of their family. That means having a place to live. It means living a long and healthy life. And that means getting their kids an education so they can each pursue their own American dream. But these essentials, a home, quality healthcare, and higher education are now moving beyond the reach of average Americans. And not because of markets, but because in each of these areas, we're not letting markets work their magic and giving government an outsized role. And in each case, government has decided to restrict supply and especially to subsidize and stimulate demand. And when this quite predictably causes prices to escalate rapidly, the policy response is to further subsidize demand, making the problem even worse. Ironically, these policy failures, which are largely bipartisan, are blamed on free market economics, further undermining the support of open markets. The left is increasingly paternalistic, spending huge sums of money to smooth over every rough edge the free economy creates. Again, holding markets to an impossible utopian standard and creating new theories to tell us it doesn't matter how reckless our fiscal and monetary policies may be. Meanwhile, the right has traditionally talked a pretty good game defending markets and advocating for limited government, albeit while joining in the bipartisan spending follies and policy mistakes. But now the populist national conservative right doesn't even defend the free economy with words as it peddles the mistaken idea that markets have failed the working class and turns against globalism in favor of failed ideas like protectionism and industrial policy that we hoped were behind us. And both sides of the political spectrum are not opposed to wielding state power against corporations that aren't behaving as politics concludes they should. The bipartisan push to use antitrust laws against technology companies is a case in point. But we're hosting this event with participants from many different points on the philosophical spectrum because we've discovered that yes, while defending the free economy is lonely, it might not be as lonely as we believed. Because there are interesting new alliances developing as we see that among the detractors of the free economy on both left and right, there are supporters as well. There is a growing coalition of market defenders across the full range of political viewpoints who may not all agree on the size and role of government in many cases, but a coalition that is broadly pro-market, that recognizes the achievements of a largely free economy, and recognizes the great risk of turning away from a system that has been so successful. Almost nothing could better illustrate the current state of the world 
both the move of former supporters away from the free economy, as well as these interesting new alliances, than the two trillion Biden stimulus. Were Republicans pushing back hard on this third COVID spending blowout? Not really, because while it was going down, they were too busy obsessing about Dr. Seuss. The most notable criticism of the bill came from the center left in the person of Larry Summers. We're so fortunate to live today, having inherited a system and framework that produced the great enrichment and the wondrous age we luckily inhabit. And it will be our shameful, immoral legacy if we deny future generations their prosperity and their own even more wondrous age, if we walk away from that system. That's why it's worth joining with allies on both left and right to defend the free economy from its enemies on both left and right. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for watching. And thank you especially to all the day's presenters. I also wanna express our deep appreciation to the Searle Freedom Trust for its generous support of today's event and our work to defend free markets. The trust has also been patient as we finally convene a conference that was originally to be held in the third month of the pandemic, two and a half years ago. Now let's get on with the discussion. As I mentioned, one policy area where the progressive left and the national conservative right seem to be coalescing in their thinking is on using or threatening to use antitrust and competition law to bring big companies to heel. So today's conference will kick off by examining antitrust populism under the chairmanship of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation's Aurelian Portraits. So I'd like to invite Aurelian and our first panel to the stage. Thanks so much. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Ryan, for the invitation. I'm very honored to uh, moderate and chair this uh, great panel of distinguished speakers. Uh, this panel is titled Fighting Back Against Antitrust Populism. So the question is, what is antitrust populism? Well, one could argue that um, populism is inherent to antitrust in a sense that Back in the 19th century, at the time of the Gilded Age of massive innovation and very large uh, increased growth, there was this reaction, these populist reactions that started to rebel against innovative and productive uh, companies. And so you, ha you had this movement, the Grangers movement, the People's Party, the Populist Party in the late 19th century that push for state antitrust laws, and finally, federal antitrust laws in 1890. And so after this momentum, we had many years of improvement of antitrust, many years of improvement through economic analysis, through the Chicago School, but also more generally through economic analysis where we refined antitrust just to make sure that consumers are not harmed when governments intervene in the economy. And yet again, here we are with a new antitrust populism. Well, we are in a new antitrust populism because the populists consider that we are in a new Gilded Age. Just to mention uh, 
For example, Tim Hu, who is now competition advisor at the White House, wrote a book, The Curse of, Business, of, Bigness, of uh, Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. So they consider that we are in a new Gilded Age. Also, Senator Klobuchar, who was one of the main leaders of uh, antitrust reforms in Congress, wrote also a book, Antitrust, Taking Monopoly Powers from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age. So the question is like, we are in this new gilded age, if you want, of massive innovation, massive economic growth, because uh, we have this new digital innovation. And yet, we have the same populist reactions of trying to tame uh, these innovations in the name of some uh, reactionary uh, reactions. So the question is, what is this uh, populism? And populism is defined as a thin ideology as opposed to a fake ideology like socialism or conservatism, which promotes the ideas of the people's belief, even though it's at the expense of the divides of society. It's so the divides of society can be small businesses versus big, can be the rural communities versus the coastal elites, and of course, the people versus the establishment. The establishment can be experts, the media, and any learned uh, societies. The populists themselves don't deny that they are populists. Just to give you an example, uh, Barilin, who spearheaded this so-called neo-Brandesian revolution, wrote in 2016 that we need uh, economic populism, antitrust populism, with a brain this time, which is not nice for the old populist of the 19th century. So what, what does it mean to have this new antitrust populism in this digital revolution, digital innovation? These are the questions that we're gonna to try to answer and that my very distinguished panelists gonna to try to explain. So I'm very delighted to have today uh, with me Jennifer Udolston, who is a policy counsel at NateChoice, Hal Varian, who is chief economist at Google and emeritus professor at Berkeley, and Joshua Wright, who is professor at George Mason University and executive director of the Global Antitrust Institute at Anton and Scalia Law School. So each of the panel is gonna give an opening remark of five minutes then we're gonna engage in a discussion. And finally, um, uh, some Q&A from the audience and also from the, uh, from the uh, from internet. Um, you can ask the questions remotely. I think there's an hashtag, which is Cato Econ. So please ask a question from Twitter, from any digital app. Um, we will be very happy to, to uh, answer. Uh, perhaps Hal, do you wanna start your opening remarks? Okay, um, I have a very short uh, slideshow for you. Does that do anything? No? No? There we go. Third, third one's charm. So I'm going to say a few words about uh, antitrust populism and online platforms and um, start with the premise there's a lot of misinformation about the tech industry. Uh, especially on the populist side. But the good news is there's also a lot of publicly accessible information that's available to everybody uh, through things like financial filings and blog posts, advertiser, documentation, uh, academic research, industry newsletters, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in fact, of course, I can't uh, 
dis describe this information in depth uh, in my uh, five to seven minute uh, remarks. And, and of course, I understand clearly that you can't really convince the true believers, but there is some hope for the un undecided. So I've compiled uh, over the years several uh, white papers on exactly this topic. Uh, how does the information compare to the misinformation that we're seeing uh, externally? And so here's just a list. Uh, so in my seven minutes, I'm going to talk about each of these uh, points <clears throat> for maybe 12, 12 seconds apiece, I think I calculated. But I'm only going to talk about the, uh, the first uh, five of them uh, there because that's uh, a good example of what can be done with these other topics. So competition, we'll start there. Where's the competition? And uh, in fact, if you look at the competition among the big five uh, ecosystems, they're all competing very heavily against each other. And uh, that's why we see these low prices and high rate of innovation. And just take a second and look down that list and see the areas in which there is uh, in really intense competition among the big tech uh, firms. And what about search? I'm particularly asked about that. People say, well, of course, there's competition in mobile phones and things of that sort, but what about search? Well, there, it's really a tough business because just ask AOL and AltaVista, ask Jeez, Yahoo, Inc. to me, Excite. I mean, there, there's a huge, there was a huge competition among those firms. And why is it so difficult? It's because you have to answer 100% of the searches you only get paid for about 6% of those, namely the commercial searches or the ads. And uh, that means you have to build this big infrastructure where you will answer all questions that come in uh, in an acceptable way. And uh, on the other hand, there's really only a few of them that make money. And that's true in advertising in general. It's true for magazines, newspapers, billboards, on and on and on. They're uh, not something that people seek out, really, but they see as a side effect of things that they do seek out, information of one sort or another. And the competition for those commercial searches is very intense. You've got all the Amazon, eBay, Facebook, Yelp, Travelocity, on and on and on, who are trying to uh, build up enough of a brand recognition that people navigate directly to those sites rather than going through any kind of, uh, of search. So if you look at direct navigation, organic clicks, app clicks, and so on, you'll see that the most popular way that people get to a website is a direct navigation. You go to Target because you want to buy some socks or something like that. Most people have favorites, whether it's uh, shopping or whether it's weather, and uh, direct navigation is the usual way they get to those sites. Look at organic search, where you're looking at a search and then looking at the organic results rather than the ad results. Organic links, search ads, and so on. Search ads are only about 8% of the entry points to shopping uh, sessions. Uh, and again, the same is true of other commercials. They, they, other commercials and advertising, they tend to be, uh, what should I say, a small part of total browsing, whatever the medium is. And what's been the result of this for spending on ads? Well, in fact, the U.S. spending on advertising as a share of GDP has been going down uh, for the last uh, few decades. Now it's uh, less than a percent 
of the uh, total spending on uh, advertising as a share of GDP. The BEA has assembled uh, a nice uh, table with 100 years of uh, advertising spend. And you can see that, generally speaking, we're seeing a period where advertising has become very cheap and uh, very easy to use. And in fact, if you look at search ad prices in particular, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the prices there have declined about 60% in the decade from 2010 to 2020. So it was a really dramatic uh, change, and that's because of all that competition that I outlined in the first slide. Point about innovation, if you look at the tech companies, they are the largest companies in terms of innovation uh, globally. Uh, Amazon, Alphabet lead the pack, then Samsung, Volkswagen, Microsoft, Huawei, et cetera. And if we take the uh, GAFA firms, the top big five, and uh, combine those with the other technology firms, you see a huge, all that red bars are showing you the amount of R&D that's going into, uh, in, in, into uh, information technology research. So these days, uh, IT is mostly Sorry, the innovation comes from information technology, from biotech of one form or another, and, uh, and automotive are really the big uh, areas that show up as uh, spending on uh, as a fraction of GDP. And if you look at Google in particular, the R&D share of revenue at Google has doubled since 2002. So that's a picture of what spend a fraction of revenue is being spent by Google, 16%, do I say that? No, not in this part, around 16% of, uh, of earnings. 6,000 research reports, 60,000 patents, granting about uh, 2,500 a year. And uh, of course, I recognize that patents are not uh, the be-all and end-all of metrics for uh, uh, innovation. In fact, a lot of what Google's doing is open source and uh, open uh, open data, but uh, it's a it's an important metric. Uh, in fact, one of the few available metrics to really measure the uh, innovation in a consistent way across uh, industries. And let's see, acquisitions. Say a word or two about acquisitions. Half of the acquisitions at Google have seven or fewer people. This is quite. Remarkable, 95 acquisitions had three or fewer employees because what's really going on in Silicon Valley is uh, aqua hires. That is an acquisition that's intended primarily to get the uh, intellectual capital from uh, an, an enterprise to contribute to your own uh, production. Uh, nice example, great case in point is Android. When it was acquired, there were four engineers in Android and uh, only a prototype operating system that kind of sort of worked. Uh, but what they really had was a vision of what you could do uh, with respect to a model of creating this mobile phone infrastructure that we've found so, uh, so useful. So generally speaking, it's a heck of a lot easier to hire a five engineer, to, to acquire a five engineer company than it is to hire five engineers separately because there are people who work together, they've accomplished something, they've shown their skills, and that's the real asset uh, in Silicon Valley is being able to have that labor market or the intellectual capital market function in a way that really uh, contributes to, to innovation.
and five times as many acquisitions than IPOs. IPOs get all the press, but actually if you look at what happens in Silicon Valley, you're seeing primarily acquisitions as the exit point from venture capital. And it's well known if you look at Silicon Valley Bank and you ask, uh, and they ask in their uh, quarterly survey, uh, what's the likely exit for your uh, firm? And uh, roughly 50% of the people say, we expect to be acquired because that's the way to get your product and your innovation to market is to uh, align yourself with uh, a larger firm who can specialize in those sorts of activities. And I think this is my last slide on entropy. Well, not quite the last slide. Uh, we're seeing a huge uh, expenditure on startups. That's a picture of what the money looks like for first rounds and later rounds of, um, of funding. And finally, my last slide, this is truly my last slide, I think, data portability, which is a big issue. Google Takeout has been available since 2011. 70 different products at Google, if you want your data to sit on your computer or on somebody else's uh, website, you can pull it down very uh, easily to G Drive, OneDrive, Dropbox, Desktop, whatever you want to do with it. And we're working on that even more with other companies to try to establish a standard for data transmission so you can download it from, let's say, your, from Google, your Google account and move it to another account in a seamless way. Uh, that's all an open source project, and we expect to see that uh, developing in the next, uh, next few years. So finally, I'll end with some words of wisdom from Judge Leonard Hand, who said, a single producer may be the survivor of a group of active competitors because of skill, foresight, industry. The successful competitor, having been urged to compete, must not be turned upon when it wins. So I will leave that to the rest of the panel to discuss. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hal. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Hal, for this uh, great presentation and great quote. Um, Jennifer, do you want to? Thank you. Thank you, Aurelian, and thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting what's sure to be a wonderful day of full discussions. Um, before I start my opening remarks, I do have a few requests for our our audience in the room, if you could please silence any Nokia cell phones. <laughs> um, make sure that if you're going to follow up on any of Hal's comments, I assume y'all all use Yahoo because they won the search wars. And finally, the hashtag Aurelian mentioned earlier, I'm sure that will be trending on MySpace momentarily. <laughs> it's easy to laugh at all this now, but less than 20 years ago, these were real headlines about the tech monopolies of the day that Nokia was the cell phone king that could never be caught, that Yahoo had clearly won the search wars, and what on earth were we going to do about MySpace's natural monopoly in social media? Now, like I said, we all laugh at this as a joke because since we did not see heavy-handed changes to the regulatory environment around competition, what we actually saw is that oftentimes innovation is our best competition policy. Innovation allows new entrants into the market to provide services that we as consumers might not have, have imagined in even what was recent history, let alone if we think about how the market for information or entertainment or for cell phone or for telephone services has changed over the past 50 years or so. 
Perhaps what is very concerning about the current push for antitrust populism is the impact that could have longer term on our lives as consumers, as well as what it could mean not only for the products that we currently love, but for smaller businesses as well. Increasingly, what we've seen is that there is a group of conservatives that have signed on to a, a group of proposals largely being pushed by the left-leaning neo-Brandeisians, in part because they're concerned about tech companies. They're concerned about issues like online content moderation or about questions that they may have about how these companies are, are uh, reacting to conservatives or just pure anger at times. But the reality is that that's a very dangerous game to play. It's a dangerous game to play in part because the left is increasingly saying the quiet parts out loud of what they believe widespread antitrust reform would do. Not to mention, antitrust would not solve most of the problems that these conservatives claim to be concerned about. Antitrust is not a tool to change content moderation policies, and it's a dangerous slope to start allowing the government to have power to regulate the industries that you're mad at. In fact, we've seen this with Democrats when they're often talking about not only how antitrust could impact big tech, but other industries of critical importance, things like pharmaceuticals, agriculture, energy, and more. But the real thing I wanna highlight is at the end of the day, while we often have these concerns about what this could do to the market in a very theoretical sense, and those are valid, I wanna bring it a little closer to home and talk about what the concerns could be for consumers. Because one of the great triumphs of free market economics has been the establishment of the consumer welfare standard. That when it comes to competition policy, what we're really focused on is what happens with the consumer. This distinguishes it in a lot of ways from the European approach to antitrust. And it's part of what allows a flourishing ecosystem of competition and part of why we also have so many choices as consumers. So let's think about some of those favorite products that we probably have as consumers. One of the examples I think about when I think about Amy Klobuchar's uh, current AICOA proposal in, that would provide broad um, antitrust changes that's been debated in the Senate is what impact that would have on a service like Amazon Prime. Many of us during the pandemic have done a lot of online shopping, and we've enjoyed the fact that we're discovering new small businesses through these different services as well. But these proposals could make it very difficult to offer certain products and services, such as Amazon Prime. Additionally, when we look at what's going on with acquisitions, we often think of, hear this portrayed as some sort of kill zone for small businesses. But the reality is, as was mentioned earlier, this provides yet another exit strategy for small businesses. There are some small businesses and startups in Silicon Valley that want to be the next Google, the next Facebook, the next Twitter, the next whatever tech company you can think of. But there are others that are looking to make an existing product better. There are serial entrepreneurs whose main goal is inventing new things, but they rely on others to really take those to market. The reality is all of these exit strategies should be considered completely valid. And while we should certainly applaud those IPOs and be excited about those new products that make it to the next phase, we should be equally as excited about those 
products that get incorporated into our existing products and make our example better, make our lives better as consumers. Finally, I think it's important to think about the impact that these proposed changes could have when it comes to consumers and prices. Again, the consumer welfare standard has so far been focused on what is the impact on consumers. But we've seen an increasing number of mergers challenged, particularly by the FTC, on, on some kind of concerning grounds. One example would be the Alumina Grail merger, which is a, a biotech issue, um, where what we've actually seen is that that could bring prices down rather than up. And as a result, consumers would benefit from having more access to genetic testing. So at the end of the day, perhaps the most concerning thing about antitrust populism is that it shifts this focus away from consumers. It shifts back to an idea that big is bad and that we should focus on competitors rather than consumers. If no one's thinking of the consumer, then what are we missing out on? Great point. Thank you. Great point, Stacia. Thank you. Uh, Josh, uh, I would love to have your take on what's going on with the antitrust populism those days. Thanks Aurelian and thanks to Cato for having me. I have been uh, waiting since Ryan invited me a couple of years ago to come here. Um, so thanks Ryan. Uh, uh, so my daughter, I have, I have a teenage daughter when she debated with me this morning what she was allowed to wear for her Halloween costume. So I say no to everything. She keeps on proposing costumes and at some point she said, um, but dad, it's spooky season. I don't know what that means, but, but I, she's a teenage girl and I'm, I don't know, it's been in my head all morning. Uh, and so I think I'm gonna play the role uh, following Hal and, and Jennifer of scaring you a little bit more about what the antitrust agencies are doing. Um, I think that they've both set up quite nicely what's at stake. Um, but when we talk about what antitrust populism is on the ground and as applied through the agencies, um, I think it's worth talking about what's actually happening inside the agencies um, and what kind of proposals are on the ground being taken seriously or, alre or are already being uh, implemented. Um, uh, I will probably focus most on the FTC in uh, my, my old job before I returned to academia. I served as a commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission for a couple of years, uh, and it is, uh, it is sad to see some of this happening at, at the FTC, so I will, I will start there. Um, let's talk about a couple of the proposals sort of actually on uh, the ground that put some of the gains um, that Hal showed you and that Jennifer talked about sort of up, up for risk. Um, Maybe the best place to start is, I'm glad they left the quote on the board. It's, it's one of my favorite quotes when I teach antitrust. Um, what, what Hal didn't teach you is the, the next sentence. Uh, you probably, if you read the quote, this looks like a case the defendant won, didn't it? Right? The judge says, oh, it's great to compete and outcompete your rivals. You get to be the monopolist at the end of that. That's wonderful. The very next sentence says, um, but Alcoa, this is a case against Alcoa uh, from over 50 years ago. Very next sentence says, um, but the way that you did it was pretty scary, and so you lose. Uh, and antitrust has come a monumental distance since then uh, by implementing the consumer welfare standard that Jennifer talked about, where the currency of proof in cases is a, a plaintiff to win has to come into court and show uh, 
abuse, creation of or abuse of market power to the detriment of consumers and sort of chopped off uh, cases from the distribution where uh, the complaints are about something else other than competition. Uh, life within the consumer welfare standard for the agencies over the past 40 years has been um, you know, differences in Republican and, and Democratic administrations, but not, not a ton. Um, sort of until now. So I'll give, give an example. Um, perhaps uh, the most striking to me, so as I live in the practice of antitrust law every day, is the Federal Trade Commission has announced uh, that when seeking consents on mergers, you go to get a merger approved by the agency, uh, and the FTC comes to you and they say, um, nice merger you have there. It would be a shame if anything happened to it. Uh, and so if you would like approval, we would like you to sign a consent decree that says, for any merger moving forward, you will need approval of the Federal Trade Commission uh, explicitly. Now, what happens if I have a merger in front of the agency? The agency thinks it's bad, I think it's good, I say, let's go see a judge. Right? So they're asking merging parties, sign away your right to go see a judge in the case that we disagree in the future, and just give the hand, uh, put that in the hands of, uh, of a couple of bureaucrats inside the Federal Trade Commission. Um, another thing actually going on inside the agency is a call for restoration of the Robinson-Patman Act. Um, uh, gentleman, Commissioner Bedoya, who sits in, the, in my old seat, um, has said, you know, you know, what would be great is if we brought back vigorous enforcement of the Robinson-Patman Act, which largely renders in law unlawful passing on discounts to that come from firm size. So uh, price differences that arise from one firm being superior to another in terms of efficiency or cost or distribution, or you're a retailer and you learn to do something really well uh, and you get lower prices because of it, um, most of that is unlawful. Um, you go back in antitrust history, 50, 60 years, left, right, and center. If you wanted to find people in antitrust policy agree on something, which is increasingly unlikely these days, you ask people what they thought about the Robinson-Patman Act. Um, it certainly resulted in higher prices um, and was about preventing large format retailers or manufacturers from taking advantage of economies of scale. Like if you designed a piece of legislation to make sure you got higher prices, you probably couldn't do better than the Robinson-Patman Act. Um, the federal agencies have sort of gone away from it over time. There's still a little bit of private enforcement, uh, but this is the first time you've seen public agencies uh, call for vigorous enforcement of it in 50 or 60 years. Um, a couple of other things just to sort of round out. If you're not scared yet, I'll, I'll sort of pick it up a little bit. Um, you've got Cong excuse me, the agencies openly lobbying Congress to pass uh, the legislation that Jennifer mentioned. So, so uh, the Klobuchar AICOA bill would do things like render it unlawful for a platform to both serve as a platform and have a product. So whether it's Amazon Prime or Google Maps or I don't know, Apple having a store, right? The doing two things at once becomes unlawful if you are a platform, right? Uh, no walking and chewing gum at the same time. Um, most of you use one of those three things that, that I mentioned, and um, I always get in the Q&A, the, do the bills really do that? And the answer is yes, the, the bills really, really do that. Um, 
one more um, to sort of round out spooky season. Everybody's scared of prison a little bit, right? So uh, the DOJ, I haven't done them yet. I've been doing mostly the FTC. So the DOJ, uh, one of the first speeches that Jonathan Cantor, the assistant attorney general gave when he took over was he said, you know, we've sort of reviewed, uh, reserved criminal antitrust enforcement for the really bad stuff, you know, naked price fixing cartels. Um, gas station owners meet in the middle of the street and say, hey, do you want to fix price? Yes, it's a felony, remains a felony. Um, what Jonathan Cantor has said is, uh, in theory, all of the antitrust laws have a criminal provision. You can sue under Section 2 of the Sherman Act and send people to jail uh, for what have been civil antitrust cases for a long time. You believe a company's got exclusive dealing provisions you don't like. They're buying up too much of the shelf space in the grocery store. Uh, you don't like the way they order their, their, their search results. Um, they've said out loud and repeatedly uh, what they would really like to do is bring a criminal case uh, for business conduct that at most has been subject to civil antitrust suits, which they have largely lost uh, over the past 40 or, or 50 years. Uh, and if you're not scared at least a little bit for them threatening to send Hal to prison, um, I don't know. I don't know if I can help you. Um, <laughs> with the, the thought I, I, so these are proposals that are actually sort of out and, and, and around. And the, the thought I will, will end with having hope that I have at least spooked you a little um, is, you know, at least a, sort of a, a minute of thought on are they going to be successful um, and I think the answer is, is, is no. Um, and I, at least for discussion purposes, want to say why. Um, a unifying theme of many of these policy proposals is to uh, evade judicial review. So one of the things that is very unique uh, and I think a, a wonderful feature, uh, there are some bad features out there, but a wonderful feature of American antitrust law is the primacy of judicial review in our process. Agencies do crazy stuff sometimes. Um, Cantor can try to bring a, a AG Cantor can try to bring a case that's criminal, um, and the defendant can say, "Let's go see an Article Three judge." I, you don't win. Uh, they can bring a case for conduct that is largely pro-consumer because they don't like it or because they, you know, don't like what they had for breakfast in the morning. It doesn't really matter what the reason is. I can say, "No, let's go see a federal judge." prove it. Um, and historically, this has disciplined the conduct of the agencies to, you know, try to bring cases they can win. Uh, and the agencies have done that across administrations sort of fairly well. And over time, uh, one of the differences in this administration is, you know, we're, I don't, for the FTC, a, a year and something into it, and the agencies combined, I think, are 0 for 6 in merger challenges. Uh, there's not been a losing streak like it in a very long time. Uh, and I don't think we'll see another one like it for a very long time. Um, the good news, I believe, is that the ways to evade judicial, judicial review are either you get one of these bills passed. I've lived in D.C. for 20 years. I'm like a bet the under on congressional activity kind of guy. Um, get rulemaking authority. FTC doesn't have it. They'll probably try but lose in courts or win cases actually put together cases and put them in front of a judge and prove to them that conduct is anti-competitive. Uh, so far, the agencies have not done that successfully. 
Um, and I think the, the good news in, in spooky season is that ultimately having successful and long lasting policy changes of the type we're describing require you to do the work and go in and court and do it early and often um, and for a long period of time. Uh, so far that has not happened. And I think that the chances of these policies implemented sort of in equilibrium is, is small, um, but goodness, there's a lot of damage to do uh, in the interim and it's, and it's really important stuff. Thank you. Thank you. To, to, to kick off the uh, discussion, I think I will have perhaps one first question. Um, one of the key uh, ways this new antitrust populism has been materialized lately was this ex executive order that President Biden passed last uh, July. Uh, and one of the reasons uh, he passed this executive order when he said that, well, we tried this experiment over the last 40 years, uh, this Chicago School Consumer Welfare Standard, uh, experiment and basically we failed antitrust laws are broken and we've never seen such a high level of monopolizations and concentrations so that's why we have to completely change uh, the pendulum and and have the embrace this populist uh, momentum which is uh, brushing away 40 years of antitrust economic analysis and enforcement what would you reply to those precisely uh, say that antitrust laws are broken, antitrust enforcement has failed, and we have to radically change the pendulum. But how? Well, I would say the biggest uh, issue in, in my mind is that uh, 40 years ago, we lived in a very different economy than we live now. We're in a global economy, and size matters because you're not just producing for the US, you're producing for the entire uh, world. And if you look at a lot of these studies that have been done by uh, economists and others, uh, they tend to ignore the rest of the world. And so if you're looking at a company, well, it's big compared to the local economy, but this is we're in a global economy now. And in many of these technologies, a global economy really matters in terms of being able to utilize uh, technology in an, in an effective way. To the global economy um, point, I think it, we've been focusing very much on what's going on in the United States around this, but this is also, we're seeing conversations around appropriate levels of competition policy happen more globally, notably in Europe with the Digital Markets Act, that is quite frankly an, an attack on American success. It's deliberately targeting these large successful American companies in an effort to try and bring them down um, because they've been so successful and we haven't seen a European competitor emerge in part because of a lot of different regulatory structures there. Um, if I can also build on kind of a, a Josh's scary comments, I think one of the scariest quotes in Senator Klobuchar's book um, that, that was referenced earlier is her comments about the reason that she believes we need antitrust reform is because of conservative judges. Um, so again, to the we're seeing a, a call to make these changes however possible, rather than focusing on the consumers, focusing instead on political goals or on 
beliefs about what the right number of competitors, what the right size of a business is from the top down rather than from the market approach. And I think that that's highly concerning. And with the Biden executive order, again, like a lot of the debate we've seen in Congress, this was not focused only on one industry. There are certainly significant ramifications for the tech industry, but there are many more areas of the executive order that impact the economy at scale and would be a, a dramatic change in the way we've seen government intervene in the economy. Talk a little bit about the, the sort of legal part of the claim that our antitrust system has failed in, in 40 years. And I, um, the sort of underlying premise of the call for change in the law is that there's anti-competitive behavior happening happening that the agencies or private plaintiffs can't get to, right? They're, they're losing cases that they should be winning. Um, and I'm often on uh, panels or in talks where somebody makes this claim and I, I say, you know, name the case. Um, surely you can, you can name one. What's, what's the wrongly decided case that the, the government should have won, but, but, the, but they didn't. It turns, I mean, over the past 40 years, if you're looking for a, a crisis in the courts in which uh, the government is losing antitrust cases regularly, um, it's pretty hard to identify one. I'm a law professor with a case book. I can point to my favorite cases. You can point to your favorite cases that you think go the other way. The government's win rate, um, the government saying that there's a crisis in the antitrust laws and they need to be flipped around, essentially, and you'll notice the one empirical regularity in every policy proposal is to lower the burden of proof for the government. Right? Uh, the government's win rate in antitrust cases over the past 20 years is edging really close to 90%. Um, try to get your sympathetic crisis feelings out with that. Um, I can't. Uh, they win most of their cases. It's not quite, you know, drug prosecutor win rate, uh, but it's really high for a set of complicated cases. Uh, the government, when it puts together a case and has evidence of consumer harm, wins its cases. Uh, loses some here and there. That's, that's what happens when people get to defend themselves in front of a judge and put on evidence in the other direction. Um, but it is very difficult uh, for me to look at what actually is happening in litigated cases uh, under the American antitrust laws uh, and think that reform and the laws needed to make the world easier on, on the government. I can just add something as, as well. It's important to note here that the consumer welfare standard is agnostic about the number of cases that the government could bring. It's not a tool that says you must bring fewer cases. It's a tool that says this is the standard it will be held to. It's also, I think, if anything, easier to look back in retrospect and kind of wonder about some of the cases that were successful. One of the ones I often think about is the Hollywood video blockbuster case that was blocked from merging because these were the two giants of home video rental. It was blocked at roughly the time that Netflix was starting to emerge. So the question becomes, what, what would have changed? And again, it's easy to play hindsight is, is always 2020, but I think there are as many cases that we can look back on now, knowing how innovation was coming in, questioning how the market was defined, um, per perhaps too narrowly given what was going on in the actual consumer experience, as there is to 
question whether there were more cases that should have been brought. Let me pick up on something that Jennifer mentioned earlier. She said that uh, it's not just tech. It's across the board. And that's absolutely right. But there are some provisions that are exactly targeted towards tech. In fact, not only in industry, but five firms. Mm -hmm. They've structured the description of who is able to uh, self-favor, uh, and the de definition applies only to five firms. It's perfectly fine for CVS, for Walmart, for Target, et cetera, to have house brands. We're used to those, but it's not okay to do that online, which is yeah. pretty amazing, Bill, with that kind of provision. That's a very uh, important point to make. I mean, very, very quickly, perhaps I would like to love have one of your thoughts, each of you, um, about this new antitrust populism, which is also a rejection of economic analysis. I mean, I'm sitting next to a chief economist. So it's like uh, they, they push their ideals in the name of values. It's like it's not about economic analysis. We we get we get enough of economists, and we put these legal changes also in the name of values of fairness of redistribution of restructuring the market so what would you what would all of you would, would reply to this idea of we just got enough of economists uh antitrust shouldn't be only about efficiency there's one question here is like is gdp the most important thing uh, should we care about efficiency prosperity or should we just care about redistribution fairness and and, and so-called values and we don't know what it is, but what's your take on Yeah, that? I would say that the current rhetoric which emerges from the progressive side is fairness, fairness, fairness. Now, fairness is a virtue, I'm sure, but it's a question of just how is it interpreted uh, in, this, in this context. And uh, of course, by fairness, I mean fairness for my friends, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily anybody else. Uh, and it's a definition which is, I think, Definitely subject to, uh, to abuse. Yeah. To pick up on that, I'm not an economist. Um, I'm an, a lawyer. Um, and one of the things I think about with this debate over what role should economics play or what role should fairness play in antitrust analysis is the question of if you replace that economic analysis, what are you replacing it with? Right now, there's a pretty objective standard. It's something that, that can be measured, and we can debate what the market definition should be, but it's something that when you go into court is a relatively objective standard. Small players, large players, consumers, the government can all know kind of what's being applied. If you replace that with an idea like fairness, that's much more subjective. And when you think about some of our, our polarized political age, what does that allow to do, particularly with an agency like the FTC, with some of the behaviors that Josh mentioned in his opening and their ability to target companies they don't like. What does that do in terms of handing the government power, not just when the party you like is in power, but when the party you don't like is in power? And I think that's very important to remember when we think about what that standard might end up replaced by. It's not just what that standard would end up replaced by when whoever you think are the good guys are in power. It's what that standard would end up replaced by when whoever you think are the bad guys are in power. Despite not being an economist, Jennifer asked exactly the right economic question, which is, you know, compared to what? Um, and I think one of the places we can learn about what would happen with our standard versus um, 
what is being proposed, these sort of multi-factor. If we're going to get rid of the consumer welfare standard and we're going to maximize two or three or four or five things at once, you know, fairness and there's a bunch of a, a democracy and uh, unicorns or whatever, um, what, are we, what are we doing? We're giving up some consumer welfare to get other stuff. Um, I think the critics of the existing system have been a little bit unclear about what other stuff exactly we are getting, but we have experience with exactly that sort of antitrust system. Um, we did not coordinate this, but, but Hal, this is the perfect quote, right? So we, we had a pre-consumer welfare standard. We had an antitrust system in this country that said uh, the way we will read Sherman Act and Clayton Act decisions is, you know, we're going to maximize uh, consumer welfare and small business welfare and fairness and maybe some industries we care about and maybe not some industries we don't care about, small dealers and worthy men and some general sense of ethics, the uniform uh, response to that in the United States from left, right, and center was uh, this didn't turn out well. Um, if you read the antitrust decisions coming from courts in 1966 or so, um, a couple of things will be clear. One, the government always wins. Two, judges really struggle uh, with, as anyone does with a standard that maximizes six things at the same time with figuring out how to make decisions in a consistent manner. Um, and so the state of play in the US circa 1966 or, or what have you is most things are illegal. Um, tying arrangements are illegal, virtually all horizontal mergers, most vertical mergers, exclusive dealing contracts, most things you would do other than hand the barista five bucks and get your coffee at the same time most of them give rise to antitrust liability. There's a reason the Supreme Court in a bunch of nine nothing decisions said, let's stop that and do consumer welfare, sort of cabin the antitrust laws to a thing uh, we can do. These weren't controversial decisions. These were a bunch of unanimous decisions. Um, and I think the history of the US antitrust experience gives a lens through which one can observe exactly what we would get um, you get decisions where Judge Hand says, um, of course we don't use the antitrust laws to punish successful competitors, eh, except probably this one. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, to you know, run an economy in that sort of operation. I really like I sure. really liked your uh, bringing up the Robinson Patman Act. It's uh, important to, to inform the audience that the target, uh, one of the major targets of the Robinson Patman was supermarkets. Supermarkets were unfair competition for a mom and pop stores on the uh, on the on the street, and there was a basically a thirty year vendetta against uh, A and P on grounds of of antitrust. And Robinson Patman was designed to meet the need for legislation that supported the opinions that were held by the FTC. We are in the house of um, free market here, and it's very interesting to, to also reflect of what does it mean antitrust populism for the view of free market and, and its ideals. What, what is clear is that antitrust populism as an as a alternative view than free market, which is what sometimes they call open market. I would love to have your, your thought of how this idea of open market, like everything has to be shared, everything has to be accessible, where with the antitrust sometimes duty to help rivals, to, to really promote them, uh, 
any intellectual property right has to be commonly shared. You have to share the data. You have to, because in the name of open markets, everything which is innovation could be seen as a barrier to entry. So you have to have these platforms that complete share. And, and this is, of course, I mean, somehow undermines free uh, markets. And how can you, how, how do you see these directions of um, this ideology of open markets undermining uh, free markets? Some sense. I'm happy to. Yeah. I'm happy to start. Um, had a last name with W. I never get to go first. Um, so I sympathize. I get it. Um, I occasionally seek out my uh, Scalia Law uh, co-author Todd Zawicki just so I can have my name first. Uh, in any event, uh, one of the, the the way I see this, not to sort of. Beat a, a, a dead a dead horse is there's a collision in that with that view and existing antitrust doctrine in, in this country. I think one of the uh, um, said earlier one of the very unique features of American antitrust uh, jurisprudence is how judge centric it is. So the Congress got together in 19, 1890 and then nineteen fourteen to write the antitrust laws and said. Um, some really vague and unhelpful things about what would be lawful and, and not. And if you read the, the legislative history, they're asked questions like, would you like to be more specific? And they largely, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, said, no, that's the judge's problem. We don't want any part of um, hard work here. And they, they sort of punted the whole exercise um, to the Article Three courts. And, you know, we've got this sort of slow evolution to sort of antitrust law to where it is now and it's a history with all, all sorts of problems that run sort of contrary to, to free market thinking uh, however I think sort of where we sit now that judicial centric role has created I think what really is the, the other signature feature of American antitrust law which is how open to innovation it is so uh, which compared to, there are now something like 133 antitrust jurisdictions in the world. Uh, and in many of them, uh, if you uh, do the thing described in the judge hand quote, um, you should just keep that up all day. If we do the thing described in the judge hand quote, you, you build the better mousetrap and you become the monopolist and you charge the monopoly price. It's unlawful in a bunch of jurisdictions across the world. Um, in the United States, American antitrust law not only allows, we jet Scalia law, there's a Scalia opinion in Trinco where there's like a love poem uh, to it becoming the monopolist through innovation. They say, you get to charge the monopoly price in the short term, and we will take that uh, trade-off to invite innovation. I do not think it is uh, a coincidence by any stretch of the imagination that um, we have that approach to antitrust law here, and when Hal put up his graph of where all the R&D spend is, an awful lot of it is within the borders of this country. Uh, I think that feature of U.S. antitrust law where we don't say, if you build a better mousetrap, you now uh, must describe how to build that mousetrap to all of your competitors. Uh, we, we do not um, turn upon the successful firm uh, in modern antitrust. Um, and I think this sort of concept of... Uh, 
expanding the duty to deal and 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 Aureli and what you described as a sort of sort of open markets. I think it's in direct contrast with what sits in American antitrust law. And I think that's why you see pushes to change that through Congress and other means rather than doing it through bringing cases um, because you will lose those cases. And it is very difficult to run a revolution by losing cases. Also to kind of build on what Josh said and go back to my kind of opening joke as well. I think at times it, I think it dramatically undersells the value of disruption. But what we've seen time and time again is this initial disruptor arise and then because they found some underlying consumer desire, others rush to meet the same need. You can think about this in, in retail. You uh, Grocery stores were brought up and of course A&P was considered an incredibly disruptive um, party at the same time. What we eventually saw was that this was what consumers wanted and other grocery stores followed suit. And now it's you know much of our, our same experience. We've seen this in terms of the growth of quick shipping and, and things like that. But I also think it's different when we are seeing the responses from individual companies to meet that consumer demand. So for example, Hal brought up earlier data portability. That is something that is often done not because of a government mandate, but because it's what consumers want. And that goes back to, I think the real focus needs to be on how are we responding to consumers' demands. I think there is some particularly concerning um, things and some proposals out there around this idea of open markets. The one that immediately comes to mind is the Open App Markets Act. Um, and there are some other potential consequences there, not only to what does this do to innovation, but some other questions that would need to be asked around, for example, what does requiring some of this openness do to, for example, cybersecurity in the, in the tech industry? What does some of this requiring openness do to what have been generally accepted business models um, throughout multiple industries and things like that? So I think it's important that we consider those other consequences as well as just kind of the the general value. Yeah, in fact, it's it's worth pointing out that the most, the loudest voices for evening, evening up the playing field, they're coming from Europe because they don't have the technology companies that the US has and they're going to go through lots of measures in order to try to acquire those companies by this uh, play, leveling the, uh, leveling the field. And there are laws that have now passed in the Digital Market Act that says uh, uh, search engines have to give away uh, all of their data to their competitors. They're really mm -hmm. quite explicit on this uh, point. Now this runs headlong into privacy issues and how that's going to be solved in Europe, I have no idea because how can you give away all your data and then uh, at the same time, preserve privacy for your clients who chose to use your system rather than someone else's. And it, I, I don't understand how that, that will possibly be uh, settled, but uh, they're moving headlong into doing exactly, uh, exactly that. All right, thank you so much. <clears throat> Any questions from the, oh, yeah, many questions. Um, gentlemen, I don't know if we have a, a mic, yes. Can you just repeat the question with your mic? Uh, I think 
this discussion has raised some very important issues about the nat political nature of yeah. decision making, and uh, particularly uh, responding to Joshua Wright's comments about six different factors. Naturally, that's going to end up in uh, uh, litigated cases. Is that the right framework for it? Are judges, uh, generalist judges, suited to doing that? I think one of the problems we're facing is this this popular image, which to a large extent is correct. This is a two-tier economy. And so the giants are seen as the top tier. And how do you reconcile that with the general theme of one size fits all, which dominates our intellectual property system and dominates our competition system? And yes, we do have this challenge from Europe. And it's not just Europe that doesn't have the tech companies. It's most of the world, with the partial exception of China. And we seem to be running into really difficult semantic issues about what open means and, and uh, standards and networks and uh, other things. What could we possibly have, imagine, a more sophisticated way of thinking about what's going on in the economy that can explain, uh, and I, I love Hal's presentations, I came specifically for that because he's so matter of fact and speaks because they're so graphic. They speak directly to some of the problems that people, that a lot of people are thinking about, but in very concrete terms. Is there a possible alternative parad paradigm between antitrust on one end and regulation, which is typically gravitates towards heavy handed? Uh, rate of return regulation, on the other hand, yeah. that would help our political system deal with this. Great. I think we're going to take another questions. Uh, just two questions, and then we answer. And uh, lady, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I would follow up on 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 this this point, and um, maybe answering uh, uh, Professor Varian's uh, questions. What what is special about digital uh, markets and digital industry? Of course, it's special because the network effects are tremendous. It's the first time in 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 economic history that we see, um, uh, you know, market tipping, and we see um, uh, arena takes all. I'm not saying it's bad per se, it's innovation that's behind it, but, but it's, it makes it special. And in that respect, um, I'm wondering whether, uh, what, what, what the panel would say about uh, Jason Fuhrman's report on the UK digital industry, because that's perhaps the one that the gentleman before me asked, we sort of that's a kind of a light touch um, uh, regulation, recognizing the specialty of the digital uh, economy, digital platforms, but at the same time, not heavy-handedly um, regulating it, as perhaps uh, the case. Great. Let's try to answer both questions uh, simultaneously. Hal, you were mentioning. Well, I've heard of this network effect thing. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I wrote a book about it. So, <laughs> I, w I would say uh, there are cases where you see technology which is a natural monopoly of one form or another, they're much rarer than one would think. If you look at supermarket chains, remember the important part was they had a chain of markets that could serve the entire US just by replicating what they'd done in the previous city, uh, do the same thing here. Walmart's another e example. So this isn't just limited to the digital world. And, and I think 
we should have an explanation of just how it is that five companies, not even an industry, just five companies are uh, required to behave in certain ways because uh, it is felt at the uh, FTC, for example, or the DOJ, that there's something wrong with this happening. You want those economies of scale. That's how they're able to make cheaper products. That's how they're able to compete effectively uh, because of the benefits that are there from the, from the economies of scale. Remember, it's not just the U.S., but it's the entire world that you're looking at. And certainly there's room for many different retailers when you look at the entire world, online retailers. And I think that you're continuing to see that these markets are incredibly dynamic. I would say that the consumer welfare standard is very adaptive to a wide range of industries and can take into consideration new technologies, including the digital markets. But one of the things I think about are the threshold requirements in Senator Klobuchar's bill. So depending on the day, Facebook, also known as Meta, is very close to dropping under those or may be under it depending on the particular day, while Walmart is continuing to grow to a point where within a few years it could very easily be covered by it. I, I will say quickly, I'm aware we're sort of running out of time, uh, uh, to respond to the, the political system question, or at least my my view on, on it is um, I think in the United States regulatory system, Going to court is how we get, to, the agencies have a case against every single one of these companies in federal court right now. I bet you they win one or two of them. Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't under, I, it fails, uh, it escapes me um, what other than the time of going to court, uh, the sort of delay, the, the court system is slow, uh, what the advantages are to some alternative relative to going to court, if you've got a competitive problem, you go to court and if you can prove it's harmful, you will win. Uh, we have 50 states that have sued virtually every one of these five companies and two, brand, two parts of the federal government that are right now in federal court uh, at various stages of litigation trying to address what they perceive as problems. They will go and they will try to prevent, uh, present evidence in front of an Article Three judge where they win most of the time. Uh, they, they might win some of those cases, they might lose some of those, those cases, but I will take that on both speed, efficiency, and accuracy, and sort of a healthier way to travel to the next equilibrium. It's longer and it's a little messier, um, but I think it gets us uh, in a healthier way that's more friendly to innovation um, than regulation is. Right. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. We have many questions uh, from the audience here and even online. Uh, perhaps just one word before Ovitra, like a giveaway. Uh, what would you uh, wish for this Congress, next Congress, to do uh, in order to limit the unstressed populism? Like, if you have one advice to policymakers, what would it be in a few seconds? Oh, I can do this quickly. Enshrine the consumer welfare standard into statute so that it's no longer common law. Do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, make sure your analysis uh, is uh, based on real data and real information. Great. Thank you so much. I'll be with you.